Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, good morning, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 156. Today we're going to talk about bug out locations, right? So I mentioned in passing recently um, in a few different places on Miyagi Mornings, on the podcast, and some comments on social media, Dorothy and I are aggressively right now shopping for property. We are always real estate shoppers. We're always looking at what's out there. Uh, as someone that sees real estate as an investment, I think that even if you're not looking to buy right now, whatever you might buy someday, you should be looking at it. You should be window shopping as easy as it online. And the reason is you should be seeing things like, well, what's available? How much does it cost? How long does it take to sell? What's it actually selling at? That way you have an informed eye for the real estate market. Even if you're like a person like, I'm never going to be an investor. If you're going to live in a house that you bought, you've invested in that property. And that means you want to be an informed investor. So if, if, if someday you might move out of your house into a new house, you should be looking at the types of property you would buy. And that way when you start actually shopping, when, you, when you're like, I am going to do this, you're a much more informed investor. You have much more knowledge of the market. So we're always doing it anyway, but we're kind of turning that, that ratchet up right now. Like we're serious, right property, we're going to make an offer, we're going to buy it. And we're looking for, in a classic sense... A bug out property. So I'm getting all these questions, and I think people are looking for an answer kind of along the lines of, look, man, we're going to be part of the American Redoubt. We're going to move into northern Idaho because there's a lower incidence of natural disasters, and that's where we can get away from the government, man, and then it rains enough that you don't have to irrigate, and you can have giant crops and grow your beans. And No. No. Do you know why? I live down here in Texas. Northern Idaho is way the hell up there. I know it looks like I'm pointing the wrong direction, but... Uh, the camera reverses the angle, so it should look like that to you. Wow, that's crazy. All right. Anyway, um, so, yeah, we're not looking to move to Idaho, and I'm not looking to set up a place that when the blue helmets of the United Nations come marching down the street to put us in camps, a la Alex Jones, we're going to run away and hide and fight the next American Revolution. No, that's, that's not what we're looking for in a bug-out location. We are looking for a place that if shit goes sideways... And we need a fallback location. And I really prefer the term fallback location to bug out location. Fallback location makes a lot more sense. To the uninitiated, it makes you sound a lot less batshit freaking crazy. And it actually is a better definition of what you're talking about. When you are in the military and you train on missions and they say, well, we're going to go set up an ambush for us. Let's just make it as simple as possible. Well. an L-shaped kill box ambush. We're waiting for this enemy troop movement, and we're going to attack and kill them. There's always a plan like, what if it doesn't work? What are our redundancies? Where do we fall back to? Where do we get back together at if we, we get split up or whatever? What do we do when this things go wrong? You don't call it a bug-out location. You call it a fallback location. 
You're going to fall back from your primary objective to a place where you get back together with your people and either take on a different objective or you retreat or whatever you're going to do. And I, I see looking at a place that you're going to like go to if something goes wrong with your primary location as more of a fallback than a bug out. I think bug out location really is part of the entire genre of prepper porn fan fiction. Right? That's what it's really all about so that we can create this kind of giant mystique of something that's probably never going to happen. However, things go wrong all the time. People are dealing with flooding right now in the Northeast. Um, if your house is full up like past your windows with water right now, how great would it be if while the insurance company found their own ass, you could just go somewhere else and live somewhere else and be comfortable? Right? That's a fallback location. Uh, what if somebody managed to uh, come after you, get your assets, but you had a second piece of property held in a real estate holding corporation, kind of off to the side that was almost impossible to get, so even if they got your primary residence or whatever, you still had that. That would be good. What if you lost your job and couldn't afford to pay your bills anymore? What if the government behaved really stupid for some odd reason over, like, you know, some kind of a virus with a 99.9% survival rate, and you lived in a town or a city where all of a sudden they had all these weird mandates and lockdowns and shit, and you had a place where you could go that even if they applied there, there was nobody there to enforce them? Wouldn't that be nice to have that? See, these are fall, these are real world fallback locations, right? So the answer to what am I looking for in a bug-out location right now in my life, the first answer is so boring. And the answer is a property that meets all my criteria that's within three hours of my home. And the answer to why is because it's within three hours of my home. And, and I, I and Dorothy together have come to that conclusion, having owned a property that was about five and a half hours away at one time from where we lived at that point, that that makes day-tripping to that property, getting things done over a weekend, one-night stays, etc., untenable for us. When I was 22 years old, you know, 20, I guess I was 25, 26 when I started, when I took the VP job for Fluke. So at 25, 26, I'd get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, leave Allentown, Pennsylvania, drive to Hartford, Connecticut, conduct an entire day's business, and sometimes drive back home. I'm not doing that shit anymore. I'm a 50-year-old man now. That's not happening anymore. And I'm certainly not doing that, and I would have not done it at the time, dragging my wife along or my big old dog Charlie down here with me. You know, like If I'm going to have a place that I can say, you know what I'm going to do is uh, Saturday morning, I'm going to load my shit up, go out there and work on it or just enjoy it, and I'm going to come home Saturday night, or I'm going to stay over, but I'm going to come home Sunday morning and still have a full day before I have to do my job again, right? Then... Three hours is that outer limit for us. Two would even be better. And when you look around most major metropolitan areas, if you draw a two-and-a-half-hour travel uh, window around them, there may be some places like if you're in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and you're heading toward the other, you know, that doesn't work as good. But there'll be some major portion, probably 75% or more, that if you are within that two-and-a-half to three-hour circle around, and that circle won't be a perfect circle because it takes longer to go to here maybe than it does to go to there because of highways and roads and natural structures, but there'll be about 75% of that area at least where your life is dramatically different there than where you are. 
And if you're kind of remote already and you do that again, there's probably a direction or section that you can go where it's even more remote, right? And it's even more getting away from people because that's part of what this is. So it works, right? And if I lived in, if I lived in Manhattan, it might not work because it's Jersey and it's still New York State, you know. But honestly, even a lot of parts of like New York near the city, if you're northern, you could probably still make that work. And that's like, you know, San Francisco, New York, it's about as bad as it gets. Portland, two and a half hours east of Portland, come on, right? Two and a half hours east of Seattle, come on, you're out in the middle of nowhere. And it's far enough that a person who lives there doesn't want to daily commute into the city. If you go an hour, even an hour and a half down here in Texas, like normal people every day commute an hour and a half to and from work. I used to do about an hour and 15 minutes on a good day, hour and a half, hour and 45 on a bad day, depending on traffic, right? So once you kind of break that two-hour limit, all of a sudden people don't want to buy property there and commute into town every day to work. What that does is you, if you look at it, you'll see that right about that one hour, 45 to two-hour point, prices go boop, and you can actually get some land in some portion of that radius, right, around where you are in two and a half, three hours out. So that works, Now, what are the things we personally want? This is where I'm going to diverge from what people normally think of as a bug-out location or even a fallback location. I think if you buy a piece of property, and I said this when, when Stephen Harris and I were doing the, the whole series we did on bug-out trolls, if you buy a trailer, an RV, anything like that, only so you can bug out, that's stupid and it's a malinvestment. You should, if you're going to have a trailer in your life that has the ability to support you, it should be for camping and recreation or business or something, right? Um, expert council member John Pugliano has this really cool ultralight pop-up camper. It's like his remote office. He goes on the road when he wants to get away from everybody and it's, it, it's like, so, but it, but it would be functional and be able to be set up if he needed it to get away because bad shit happened in Salt Lake or whatever, right? And that's how I think you should view a bug allocation. So I'm a grandfather. I have a 10-year-old grandson who's got a lot of growing to do, who wants to learn to shoot guns better than he already knows how. He wants to go out with his bow. He wants to learn how to hunt. He, like, he loves to fish. I got a granddaughter who's five, and she's coming up in this world, and she thinks fishing is great, and she thinks being out in the woods is great, and she loves trails and she loves to go hiking and I'm sure as soon as we had a four-wheeler option she'd love that right so I'm looking for a place that's a recreational property first I want to be able to take my wife my dogs my kids uh, and I want to go out and I just want to have fun I want when it's hunting season I don't want to pay a deer lease like you have to in this stupid state I mean there's so many great things about Texas but highly available public hunting land or even private land you can just get permission to hunt sucks right so Having your own place for, you know, some deer feeders set up and some salt licks and stuff, I want that. I want a place to fish. I want surface water. Minimum, I want a half-acre pond, one each minimum. I, I prefer multiple ponds. So the property either has to have surface water on it, or it has to be like, I can go in and look at it with my eyes and say, yeah, here, there, whatever. Uh, maybe do a test core hole and make sure there's not a rock bed like I have here. Uh, make sure the soil type's right, but I, I have to be able to put water in. Flowing water is even better. If I have a, a border or a creek running through, especially something that's not seasonal, it's year-round, that's even better. Like Those are the things I want. Acreage, minimum 20, and uh, that's based on budget. If I, had the, if I had a bigger budget, maybe the minimum would be 100. Uh, but 
in my budget, I see a lot of properties in that circle, 20 to 50 acres that work. And it's just about finding the right one for us at the right time with the right motivated seller. So that's, that's what we're looking for. And we're trying to stack that. Then I do not need a property to have a structure on it, right? A, a building, an outbuilding, a house, a cabin, whatever. But if it does, okay, we got something hard shell shelter right away. We're, we're ahead if we have that. Uh, two, it does not have to be on grid, but I would prefer that it be on grid because it's faster and quicker to get it functioning the way that we want it to function. So some of the places we found have like steel frame workshops, right? And they have power to them. And it wouldn't take much to, you know, maybe even if you didn't want to do the whole thing, because some are pretty large, like create a structure inside the structure smaller so you have climate control. You know why? It's Texas. If I was buying a property in Eastern Washington, I probably wouldn't be worried about air conditioning. You put in a wood-burning stove and you're good, right? Uh, here, like, I'm not going to go recreate and then sweat. So I'm going to want to be able to put in some sort of septic solution. Uh, I can pee behind a tree. I can poop behind a tree. I'm happy. I got a wife to, you know, to deal with. I got a five-year-old girl to deal with. Like, no, I, so I, and many of you do too, because instead of being a grandfather who wants to recreate, right, you have kids. So you have to think about this. So, What I want to do is I want to immediately take the property up to where it is comfortable for recreation, and then we'll go into a long-term process of making it good for going to, but every single thing we do to it that costs money and time is going to be done with an eyeball of, does this make this property more valuable in the mind of a buyer in the future than the way that it sits right now? So I know... If I have a 35-acre property and it's got a two-and-a-half-acre lake on it already, it's valuable to me. But I know if I can find a couple locations and put a couple more pieces of, of, you know, plots of water on there, that it's more valuable. If I can, you know, put some rudimentary uh, roads in that are actually four-wheeler paths, that makes it more accessible, that makes it more valuable. If I can build that cabin into something that's more like a little two-bedroom house, but looks like a cat. It looks like a, it looks like a shack, but actually inside it's a really nice. So it's less likely to be infiltrated by two-legged rats while I'm not there, right? That that's more valuable. I, I know that if I put in some sort of underground storm shelter that's actually storage, in addition to being underground shelter, and it's really hard to see. And even if the two-legged rats come and steal some of the stuff, that the majority of the stuff is hidden below ground and you can't get to it, that makes it more valuable, right? Like all those things make that that property more valuable. Window Liquor Prepper says, better start hustling, time just got short. Um, calm down, relax. I'm the one that's been screaming, get out for what, two years, three years, ten years, whatever. Um, you know what's happening to these types of properties right now in my market? They're going down in value. I have seen the type of property, and this is part of what's got our buy meter ratcheted up. Okay, I have seen these properties drop over the summer by about 30 to 35% on aggregate average. Now, houses up, farmland up, wooded recreational properties down. What gives? Well, people want agricultural land. Did I say anything about agricultural land? No. Did I even say anything about a garden? No. If, am I going to worry about putting a garden on a property that I'm going to step foot on, on average, three to four days out of a month. No. Why would I? I'm going to have weeds. 
Now, I might go in and use some of my permaculture knowledge, and I might be like, ooh, look at that contour line, and that's that open property that piece of the property that's not wooded right now that they had open for whatever reason. Maybe, you know, timber company went in and timbered it out, and I could throw a swale in there, and I could plant that all with pecan trees, and that would become a major overstory and a food source and a resource for the wildlife, and... You know, maybe I uh, do as an understory persimmon with that pecan and, you know, something like that, right? Sure, but I don't need high-quality agricultural land to do that with, right? So I'm looking for a type of property that's more of a hunter-gatherer's property than a farmer's property because that fits my needs. Now, if you want farmland, ooh, you know, then you better learn permaculture because straight up, you know, black dirt, Midwestern topsoil type farmland right now is stupid expensive. And that's, if you're going to do this right now and you're not independently wealthy, and I don't mean like you got some money, I mean like independently wealthy and you want some significant land, amount of land, and you, if you're going to do that, you need to be creative in how. So, like, just taking another thing here before we wrap up, Sean Mills on the Expert Council. Um, at one time I was having a debate with Stephen Harris, who's no longer on the expert council. We won't worry about why today. And uh, Sean said you can make sol a solar installation pay for itself on day one because Sean thinks broadly instead of narrow focus. This is what I know to be true, right? And uh, Stephen told him basically bullshit. So Sean's like, well, the way you do that is you look at two pieces of property that are basically equivalent And one has electrical access, and one doesn't have electric access. And then if the cost to develop the property that doesn't have grid access, of buying the property plus the cost of the solar system, is less than the cost of the property that has grid access, the day you move in, the solar system is more than paid for itself. So if we have a property that's selling for $100,000, and a property that's selling for $300,000, and the $300,000 property has access to the grid, and the $100,000 property doesn't, and we put in $50,000 worth of solar, and that gives us all the power we need and more, and $50,000 would, right? Then we just bought a $300,000 property for $150,000. And if you want to do this, this that, that's not the formula. That's a formula. But this is how we need to be thinking And somebody says down here, it took us six to eight months of looking to find their property. That's uh, Ron Boot's farm. Yeah, see, and you have to be patient. That's why I said when you, when you, when he's like, you better hurry up. No. No, you better hurry up and start. But hurry up and act. That's where you make mistakes. The house I'm sitting in right now, some of you remember, we were living in Arkansas. Due to family reasons, we decided to come back here. It took us eight months to find this property. And it wasn't perfect. But it was so much better than everything else we looked at and thought, maybe this is right, maybe this is right. We got to a point where we went, this is about as good as we're going to do, and we knew that we were patient. We were extremely patient. I'm going to finish up with one thought on real estate. This applies to real estate, bug out location, rental property, vacation home, primary residence, I don't care what it is. When you, it's seller or buyer, by the way. When you deal with re, real property, this is a lot of assets, but specifically real property. You must become a Vulcan. You must become Mr. Spock. That is not logical. Done. How you feel doesn't matter when you're making the decision to buy or accept an offer as a seller. All that matters, what is the fair market value of the property? Does the property meet the criteria? Are there any other properties that do better? 
Because in the end, whether people are aware of it or not, every buyer of a lot of things, but especially real estate, is a settler. I don't care if your budget is $100,000, a million dollars, or $10 million. There is something that if you had more money, you would have. And this is key to selling property. That's my 1% formula. We won't get into that today. But every, So as a buyer, you need to be aware of it just like you are as a seller. So as a seller, I want to make my property 1% better than everything competing it with. That's all I got to do. I'll sell my property like that fast, assuming there's any market at all going on. And I'm not an idiot, and I didn't price it 900. You know, I don't, I'm not 1% better, and I priced it you know, 50% more. That's dumb. But as a buyer, I need to be cognizant of that's what I'm doing. I have a budget, and I have a dream. And I'm trying to get that budget as close to that dream as I can, and I'm never going to 100% fully realize that dream. I'm only going to get so close to it. So as we get closer and closer and tick boxes, there's a point where the logic kicks in and says, there's some things that we would really like. And there's some things that we wish. But wishing and shitting in your hands, you know, you're going to fill up your hands with your shit first. Okay? So you're going to, you, you, there's things that we wish. But having become informed investors, knowing the market space, knowing what's available, this is a gem. And it doesn't give me everything, but it gives me 80%, and I can make 10% more, and that's 90%. And now I just have to make a, a, a logical calculation. Does that warrant the price? Do I have the money? Do I have the budget? Do I have the ability to service debt on it, etc.? And you have to be stone freaking cold. And if you find a property that doesn't appraise at the asking price, and you start getting some sob story bullshit from the seller, I'm sorry, this is what the property appraised at. You know, make, like when that happened here, we got an incredible deal on this property. And I did give them an extra $5,000 because I felt they got kind of did hard by the appraiser. But I also knew something. No appraiser was going to come, and this is structured property. You have to have a house for this to really apply. But, you know, no appraiser was going to come in, pull the past appraisals, and change it very much. So I was like, yeah, I think they, but I saved like $35,000 because of the way it appraised. And my real estate agent was freaking out. My wife was freaking out. And I'm like, five extra grand. Talk to me when you want to sell your property. Bye. And this was like over Christmas and New Year's. And my wife was freaking out the whole time. Like, we're going to have to start all over. Like, uh-uh. No, they're screwed. And all they need is enough time to sit and think about how screwed they are. And, you know, you might not be in that powerful of a position right now because the market's a lot hotter than it was eight years ago. But you have to think that way. You have to calculate everything. And then you say, no, no more. This is it. And if you, if you get emotional with real estate, I promise you, you will hate yourself in a year or two. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up, and we will be back tomorrow with another episode. Maybe tomorrow we'll talk about crypto. Well, hi, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings 157. As uh, we're going to talk about, we're going to do our weekly episode. We seem to do one a week in general on cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin today, but also NFTs or non-fungible tokens. I want to start out with just, and hopefully I can get this all knocked out in less than five minutes, a cautionary note on taking advice about buying crypto in general. But today I'm talking about Bitcoin, but this could apply to anything. But I do have some articles in the video notes for you to check out. And uh, I, I want to explain how some of them are seen as extremely bullish and some of them are extremely bearish. And yet each of them could be really either neither or the opposite. 
So let's start out with kind of the most bearish thing, which means bearish is bad for those that are not investors and don't know like the bull market, bear market thing. Um, but the, the, the most bearish thing that I could find is somebody, and we don't know who, but we know somebody because you can see Bitcoin transactions on a public ledger. And we can see historically that this account on Hubei, which is a Chinese exchange, but now they have offices in like Singapore and Hong Kong, etc. Because, you know, China cracked down on Bitcoin. Um, they, somebody moved $740 million in Bitcoin onto that exchange. This is also an address that since they're using the same address, which I think that's kind of dumb, but they are. Um, this address in the past has had large deposits of Bitcoin which have been very quickly then sold off. So that would be seen as bearish news because $740 million worth of Bitcoin being sold by one holder. Oh, my God. Ah, the end of the world is coming. Um, uh, not so much. Uh, it's amazing. Some people will really react to something like this, and then you'll say, well, what's the daily trading volume of Bitcoin? Because the daily trading volume of Bitcoin is like, $2 billion, and that's like 40% of the daily trading volume. That's that's a shitload. That's going to have an impact. That's going to leave a mark, right? The daily trading volume of Bitcoin yesterday was something like $37 billion. So this is less than 137th of a daily trade volume. It's significant, don't get me wrong, but it's not like it's something that if they dumped it all, you would expect that the market would just start cascading downward. So you could actually take this supposedly bearish idea and see it as bullish in that if I think the market's about to really go up and I'm deep in the money and I, and I don't really trade much, but if, I'm a, if, I'm go, if I have like money set aside to trade and I don't like to hold on exchanges so I've pulled it off and I'm anticipating a massive move up in price, and I want to be able to act on that move, I'm going to take the money I have for trading and I'm going to move it onto an exchange so that, in fact, I'm probably going to go ahead and if I know that I want to sell half of it, at, let's say right now if it was Bitcoin and I've decided I want to sell it at 51.5, don't take that to me, I'm just pulling a number out of my ass. I'm probably going to go ahead and set sell orders for the quantity of that total volume immediately waiting for that to hit, because I've already decided that's my profit take, and I want to take 40% of this total volume at that, and maybe I'm going to take a risk a little more going a little higher, and I'm trying to collect profits because I'm in the money. So that would actually be a sophisticated trader with a lot of money anticipating a big move up in price. So is it bullish or bearish? Depends on how you look at it. I've got some other ones for you. Uh, there's a speculative article out, Bloomberg is saying that the SEC is likely to approve a Bitcoin ETF by November. This is incredibly bullish because if you get an ETF and everybody in the United States of America with an IRA, conventional, or Roth is able to immediately say, I want to buy Bitcoin, and there's billions and billions and billions of dollars sitting there chomping at the bit, money that's inside these vehicles, that it's very you can't really buy Bitcoin with them now. You have to do some kind of creative rollover into self-directed. People aren't comfortable with that. When people can just say, "Ooh, new Bitcoin ETF. I'm going to put five percent of my money there." Boom. Understand that if all the Bitcoin was available and it's not, that only one in five people in the entire United States could potentially own one Bitcoin and they would all be gone. 
So that's incredibly bullish news, incredibly good news if you want Bitcoin to go up in price. However, um, <laughs> well, what if it doesn't happen? Because we've heard this song before. I personally think it's probably going to. But if it doesn't happen and everybody expects that it's going to happen and the SEC comes out and says, we're not doing this yet again, what does that cause? Does that cause pullback? Maybe. I don't know. So there's some other ones in here. Uh, Bitcoin rejects 51000 after Michael Saylor reviews a new Bitcoin purchase. So he bought a shitload more Bitcoin. But again, it's a fraction of daily trading volume. And by the way, it's exactly what Michael was saying is the continued progression of Bitcoin is the trading volume goes up daily the significance of any individual trade goes down, and you get less of this crazy volatility, right? You get a long-term trend. Sure, there's corrections, but you get less of this crazy shit, which is not good for traders, by the way. Traders love this. This is how traders make money, up and down, up and down, for those who don't see the video, right? They love volatility. Volatility is where it's all about. That's why you can make so much money trading Bitcoin, altcoins, etc., right? Um Because it goes up and down, up and down. And that, that volatility is where the opportunity comes from. And I'm, I'm, I'm polling the audience right now um, who's watching a live stream. I want to know what people think. And, of course, if you're listening to the podcast, you just have to kind of come up with this number in your head. What do you think Bitcoin's price will be in 2021 by the end of the year? Um, and specifically, not how what's the price it will end the year at, but what will its high be? How high will it go Did we already have it at 64? Is it not going to get back there? Is it going to go higher? Is it going to hit 100? Is it going to 110? My personal belief is our our high for 2021 will be somewhere between 90 and 110,000. That's my guess, um, and it is based on a lot of reality. But I'm, I am being very honest in that I'm just speculating. I'm just speculating. And I'm going to tell you, if that ETF comes through, the earlier in the year it comes through, the higher it will push the, 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 the high for the year. Um, and I, I think that's totally credible. Um, but, but, I don't know and I admit it. And this is kind of what I wanted to just put out as a disclaimer with some of you that are getting into Bitcoin, getting into cryptocurrency that are newbies. Newbies get scalped. Newbies make mistakes. Newbies get greedy. Newbies go through different cycles before they kind of level out and just say, you know what, I'm going to pick this currency or maybe these other alts with it, and I'm going to buy in every month, and maybe I'll put a little bit aside, like 10% of my holding is, is some play around trading stuff where I think I see some opportunities. But in the end, I'm basically going to do like a modified dollar cost average. That's what I do. I put money aside to buy Bitcoin or other crypto with, and when I see a correction, so maybe if it's like really hits a spike, And if today's the day I'm supposed to buy it, I say, nah, I'll just kind of wait. And if it stays up there, fine. But if it comes down, then I get more, right? So I'm more of being cautious on the buy-in than anything else. It takes a while to get there. And the thumbnail for today's video was, you know, a saying, a fool and his Bitcoin are soon parted, right? And I, I believe that. And I believe that is because people kind of go crazy when they come in the door. And then they start listening to people who sound like they're intelligent. And I want to explain to you how a lot of these so-called gurus, especially on YouTube, uh, can sound like they know what they're doing and have a track record that looks like they know what they're doing when they don't, when they're just bullshitting. So here's the basic formula. It's kind of like the mentalist that comes into a room and does a psychic reading, and then at the end of it he says, I didn't do anything psychic, I was able to read the room, etc., except it's a lot easier. It goes like this. 
Bitcoin is probably going to have a new all-time high somewhere around $60,000 by the end of September. Insert random bullshit technical terms here justifying the prediction. Okay. However, if it fails to break through, insert random price below the top price here for more than about a week or two, that could fail to happen. And if you keep coming out like that all the time, all the time, on an asset that over time generally appreciates in volume, you'll be right about the up more than you are the down. You'll have plenty of time to adjust your down when all these signals come in, and you always hedged your prediction. It's like being a weatherman and coming out and going, we have a 50-50 chance of rain tomorrow. Insert random meteorological bullshit here as to what's probably going to cause it to rain followed by insert random bullshit here about high-pressure caps that could prevent it from happening. Well, how can you be wrong? Please be careful in taking advice. That's, that's all I'm saying. And be careful of these people who, who come out as though they actually know what they're talking about when often they do not. Right. Um, it's just... It's just so common right now, and it's so easy to look smart in this space. right? That's why I always try to talk about the fact that everything I say is a guess, and it's based on seven years of history, and it still could be wrong. And I just tell you what I see coming, and I tell you things that other people won't. And I'm going to tell you flat out right now, if you want to get the most views for a YouTube video about Bitcoin, put something in there like, Bitcoin will be 85000 by the end of September, and you're going to get more views. And if you put in something like Bitcoin expected to retract to 30,000, you're not going to get as many views because the bear, the, the, the bull sentiment is out right now. Everybody wants to hear what they want to hear. So you got to be really careful when we enter this stage of a market. I still think there's a lot of you know upside uh, this year. I really do because of a lot of other things that we won't get into. Because I want to talk about NFTs for a minute. Um, I don't like NFTs as they're being used right now. I personally think that the concept of an NFT, which is a non-fungible token, meaning this token gives me rights to the ownership of something else. Uh, this is a pretty generic um, black powder pistol, right? This is it's a nice gun, but it's just generic. Let's say that this pistol belonged to freaking Billy the Kid, and I had proof that this belonged to Billy the Kid. And so you would normally have something like some kind of certificate of authenticity that goes along with it. Well, if you took that and you rolled it into an NFT that carried with it not just like here is this authenticity or here's maybe instead of one expert, there's multiple experts that have said this really was Billy the Kid's freaking gun, right? And then that NFT also conferred to it until transferred Jack Spirico has the rights to this gun. If anybody else has this gun and claims it as their own, they're a fucking liar, and they have stolen, and Mr. Spirico has legal recourse. Okay, I get that. And this technology then could be leveraged to do things like, I don't know, replace the title industry for houses, which is a... Com the title industry right now for housing is a complete scam. The fact that a person buying a house ends up paying over $1,000 to have a title search done is a scam. It was designed to be a scam, and it's designed to pad the roles of multiple parties when a, a property is transferred. 
If you had an NFT on a property that was on a, that, that was connected to a public ledger that anybody could just enter it in and go, okay, here's any liens against it, you wouldn't need a freaking title company. Right? So we could, we could literally replace title companies. We could put, replace titles on automobiles with NFTs. We could completely revolutionize digital rights to things that people actually consume in quantity versus some bullshit like, I made a gif of a frog licking its ass, but if you want to be the one that has the rights to the original, give me $50,000. And some dumbass right now is doing it. But what we could have is we could create an entire music distribution channel that when people listen to music, we get rid of Spotify, we get rid of all that shit, right? We get rid of subscriptions, And maybe it works like Podcasting 2.0, and there's an NFT with every copy of the music that assigns the uh, ability to listen to it to a user, and every time you listen to a song, some of what you would normally call a subscription fee goes directly to the artist. We could use NFTs for that. We could use other technologies for that, but at least it makes sense. We could create, you know, back when I was a kid, we used to listen to these things, I'm so old! We had cassette tapes. We actually had eight tracks at one point, but we were just going to cassette tapes. And you could go to the mall, and then there was this like little kiosk. And then you could go in and be like, I'm, I'm kind of done listening to this tape. Or actually, I made a copy of it, right? Which is kind of tells you how stupid NFTs are. And you could like sell it, and maybe if it was like an album you pay $12 bucks for, you'd get like $1.50 for it. But then you wanted this other album that was used, and you could buy that for like $3 bucks. So the guy was making 100% markup, but you could cheaply get other music and go like, like that. Well, what if when you passed the song along, there was a very small nominal charge, but it went to the original artist? And we'd get rid of Sony and BMG and all that shit. Like, we could do that. We could have books that upon transfer have a small transfer fee that go to the, the, the author. Right? Like, this makes sense. And NFTs could enable stuff like this. Right, So you have the NFT not to the original copy of a book that has a million copies. You have an NFT to this book when you buy it. And if you want to transfer it to someone else, it's only right that maybe that author you know, makes some money on it. Or maybe even you sell it, and only if you sell it does the author get a cut. Maybe the author gets a 10% royalty if you transfer ownership of the book. So instead of going to Amazon and buying another copy of the book, I buy it from you, used, second hand, and if the book's selling for $11 on Amazon, I, you, you sell it to me for whatever you want, let's say $7. Bucks. But $0.70 cents of that $7 bucks goes to Brad Thor because he wrote the book. Right? This is the way that an NFT actually can make sense. It makes sense this way. An NFT on a GIF of me punching somebody in the face... That's a cool gift, but it's viral. It's, it's, it's infinitely reproducible, and it doesn't have any real value. It's something somebody looks at for like 10 seconds, goes, ah, Jack, punch a guy in the face, and then so what? So I, I really think that NFTs as they're being used right now are beyond stupid. And I think if you pay $10 for an NFT for a GIF, you're an idiot. If you pay $1,000, you're a complete freaking moron. And if you pay $10,000, please email me and I will sell you the digital rights to TSPC podcast number one, which sucks, but it is number one for $10,000. And I actually won't do it because I'm too moral to take money from somebody that stupid. I don't hate money, but I still have integrity. 
Now, I do understand that some people are buying NFTs and quickly flipping them. My son, and I was like, oh my God, what have you done? Told me he bought some freaking pack of gifts from NBA, the NBA. And I'm like, well, what'd you pay for it? He's like, 49 bucks. I'm like, he's like, but I got 12. I'm like, he goes, no, but I looked at it like a lottery ticket. And it turned out one of them was worth like 2,500 bucks. And I'm like, well, was it? He goes, well, like, that was kind of like the estimate, but in the market. But when I put it up for sale, I got $1,800 for it. And I don't give a shit about the rest of them. I'm like, okay, I get, you're playing a game then. But somebody's going to be the last person to pay for the rights to an infinitely reproducible freaking GIF or JPEG or whatever. And that's dumb. And this is my concern. Like, people losing money because they're stupid, that's the market. When you're tied into crypto, though, and as big as this is getting, I think that this is one of my bearish fears. That eventually, all this NFT nonsense is going to have to unravel. And when it does, it's going to do harm. It's going to do hurt to the entire crypto space. But I think the place that will probably get hurt the least by it will be Bitcoin. You know why? Bitcoin's not involved with this stupid shit, right? It, it and I don't mean don't I'm not saying it won't cause any price retraction when this all unravels. I think there's a bunch of shit that's really scary in crypto right now. There's so much leverage. There's so many people levered into levered into levered in and eventually this stuff gets called out and people lose. And you know what? I'm fine with that. If the government would get the hell away from it, Because what starts to happen is people lose and then everybody wants to fix the loss. Somebody got screwed. No, you were stupid. You leveraged on top of leverage on top of leverage and you lost. It happens all the time in commodities, etc. It happens all the time in futures markets, everywhere else. You lose. Sorry. Sorry. But it's going to be special because it's crypto. So it, it frightens me that people are this dumb. I also read something recently. I don't have a link for you guys, but it was something like, One-third of people buying crypto today. Now, of course, it always depends where did you get this number from. One-third of crypto buyers are saying they've been influenced by Doge Daddy Elon Musk. Now, that's kind of weird because does that mean they were influenced by his comments on Doge or by Musk at all? Because I know, like, my, my nephew, who's finally buying crypto, who called me up and said, how do I do this? And I know I'm stupid. Don't lecture me, right? It was Elon getting involved where he's like, yeah, I... I need to put some of this on my balance sheet. So he would answer that yes, but he doesn't give a flying crap about Doge. But like the sheer interest by morons in Doge, and I, I look at it this way. When Elon Musk tweeted about Doge, it was an IQ test. And people tell you you can't fail an IQ test. Those people fail IQ tests all the time. You can fail an IQ test, this kind. And if people, if you bought into Doge because you believe in its long-term potential because somebody makes a tweet, I don't care who it is, right? I don't care if it's Elon Musk with Jeff Bezos sitting in his lap and they do it together. You're an idiot. All you have to do is look at the issuance and you understand there is no scarcity here, right? And you got Cuban talking about, well, it's good money because there's lots of it. Yeah. <laughs> And this kind of thing is the most dangerous. That's the most dangerous thing to crypto right now is not the United States federal government, in of itself. It's this kind of nonsense. These these like NFTs are today's crypto kitties, but they're even more stupid. Investing in complete shit like Dogecoin, 
is even worse than that. And we have over, it's something like 9,000 recognized crypto coins and tokens right now. Over 9,000, and it's actually more than that. It's like 9,000 listed in like, you know, CoinMarketCap, CoinGecko, etc. We don't need that shit. 95% of this shit, as I've told you before, is worthless. It's totally worthless. And I... I am amazed at this point. Like, it didn't surprise me in 2015, 2016 when people were buying into ideas. This thing's going to do this other thing, right? There's maybe 5% of what's out there are quality projects right now with actual use case scenarios that are actually, you know, maybe not needed because we don't, you know, need means if you don't have it, you die. But they have, there's a market demand for what they do that's not already filled by something else. And I've been talking to you guys those are the podcast since like 2015 and saying, if you can't give me the use case for the utility of the token, I don't want to talk to you. And just because it has a valid use case, does something already do it? How does this do it better? And does it do it enough better that it matters? And 95% or more of the shit that's out there cannot get past that. And people buying into it today, to me, is incredibly dangerous. And I'm going to tell you why I think it is. And I have a question similar to this in the uh, the live feed right now. I think it's because people come in and they look at Bitcoin. And this was true when Bitcoin was $300, $600, $1,000, $1,100, right? Which, right now, if you could buy Bitcoin for $1,100, most of you would go sell your car to do it, right? As long as it wasn't because it went down to $1,100. But you think, man, I should have done that. I should have done that. Even when it was 1100 even when it was 600 even when it was 300 even when it was 100 once the altcoins started, this is how people think. I can't get very much. I can't get very much. Folks, you really have to understand, if you buy $1,000 worth of anything, and it goes up by 50%, no matter the individual quantity, you made 50% on your money. And I think what's going on is the same reason that people go, well, if I'm going to invest in precious metal, I'm going to buy silver, not gold. And if you're thinking about barter units with silver, okay, you can make a case for that. If it's just because you get more ounces, if they track very close to each other, your ROI is the same. So there's this kind of a, a greed, a FOMO greed, and I want to find the next Bitcoin, man. I want the thing that, and it can happen, it can work out. I mean, those of you that listen to me who bought R when it was $0.08 cents to $0.20, cents, and it's now in like the four, mid $4 range, that worked out. But that is so unique because it passed the test. It had a unique utility that didn't already exist, and it did it better than anything else out there, and there was a demand for it. And I think it'll continue to go up. But I would never have sold off half my Bitcoin to buy it. Even though it would have worked out, it would have been a risk. I would have been, it would have been an untenable risk. So personally, and I want to finish up here, my, my real advice to somebody that's new to crypto, your first goal should be get to the left of the decimal point with Bitcoin. Get to 1.0 Bitcoin before you, eat, in my opinion, before you bother with anything else. If, and then I'll, I'll give you an out. If you want to put aside 500 bucks while you're doing that and say, this is so, if I see something and Jack goes, you really should buy some, you know, fill in the blank, or somebody else does it and I trust them, and I'm like, it's a lottery ticket, and you want to buy 150, 200 bucks worth, okay. But 99% of your money should go to the most proven horse in the race that you know is still going to be running next year, five years from now, 10 years from now, and that's Bitcoin.
And the reason is it is in some ways a trophy asset. Like I said, if, if all the Bitcoin owned by everybody right now was sold and it went to a giant pool and, these, and people said you have to buy one whole Bitcoin to buy any of them and 20% of the people in the United States wanted one, no matter what the price is, if it was five bucks, it can't happen. There's not enough for one in five Americans to own one Bitcoin. And that's ignoring the rest of the world, which is far outweighs us in population. We have two nations with more than a billion people in them. We have plenty of nations with over 100 million people in them. We have billions of people around the world, and we only have 21 million of these things on the most secure network and the most successful network and the most successful thing humans have ever done. You can, uh, I, I hate to say this, it almost sounds assholish. It's something that um, Bitcoin maximalists also often say. And sometimes I think Bitcoin, like pure maximalists, are toxic in their assholes. It doesn't always make them wrong. And they often say, have fun being poor. And I think there's some reality to that at this point. With that, we'll close up and we'll talk about something other than cryptocurrency tomorrow. Well, hi folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings 158. Uh, 158 times now we've gotten together for Miyagi Mornings. And today, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the importance of a routine, specifically from my vantage point as an entrepreneur, because I think there's a, there's a, a thing that you need to do as an entrepreneur when it comes to routines, because nobody's doing it for you. And I think this also applies to, if you work from home, you need this too, big time. My first job working from home was well over 20 years ago. And uh, it was in sales. And once I started working in sales, basically they say, here's your quota, here's your territory or limitations, here's the flexibility of deals you can make with uh, out getting uh, approval and Here's the threshold where you need to ask us for approval and go. And as long as number go up and number meet quota, they leave you alone, which is great. Uh, and I, then even when I wasn't in like uh, that kind of capacity, as I moved into marketing, what have you, I had enough kind of clout in any position I had after that that if I wanted to work from home for a few days, I could do it. If I wanted to uh, take a vacation, whether I had time or not to do it with, I could just do it. Like I had so much flexibility. Uh, and, you know, up until the time where I started the Survival Podcast, when you own the company, you can kind of do what you want, right? So in all of those things, from employees with all that flexibility, work-from-home environments, a ton of y'all are doing that now, uh, to completely working for yourself, to running a company, um, this is something that kind of is necessary, in my opinion, uh, for you to install for yourself, because what all of a sudden happens is whatever was providing you with a routine goes away. So think about, you know, Bob has a job. Bob has to be to work at 8 o'clock. Bob works till 5 o'clock. Bob gets a lunch break. Bob gets a, um, you know, maybe a break between showing up at lunchtime and sometime between lunchtime and, 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 and being off for the day, he gets another break. Bob has a meeting every Thursday. Bob has uh, some report due every Tuesday, etc. So like, Without even saying, Bob, here's your routine, these things that Bob is held accountable to, and somebody says, if you don't do this, you're going to get fucking fired, Bob. Bob ends up with a routine, and it even creates a routine just off the edges of Bob's day. So if Bob has to be to work by 8, 
and it takes Bob 30 minutes to get to work, and Bob has to show up not dressed like a slob, then Bob has to get up at a certain time, get himself ready, feed himself, get his kids off to school, etc., get in the car, get to work, and at the end of the day, Bob has to get home. And then that's going to cascade into setting kind of, well, what time does Bob eat dinner? When does Bob's wife get home? When do the kids... Like, you see what I'm saying? So, like, the average person, and, and this is what I've talked about, and this is why I hate, you know, normal, has a, a, a routine devised for them because their life has been designed on their behalf by somebody else. And that sucks. But at least what it does is Bob gets his ass up Monday through Friday at this time. Bob has a certain amount of value then in his mind to his weekends and his days off and his vacations, etc. And so everything kind of flows for Bob. So then Bob like works his ass off, maybe starts a side hustle, gets that up and running, and then realizes, hey, I have enough income. I don't have to work for these assholes anymore. And he quits. Okay, Or... Bob finagles himself kind of up the ranks, and like Jack, he gets a job in sales. They give him a territory of five states. Company's headquartered in the West Coast. Bob has, like, the Northeast. So Bob works out of his house. They give him an expense account. Go be fruitful and multiply. And anything like that, right, all of a sudden Bob doesn't have somebody telling him when to get out of bed anymore. All of a sudden, Bob doesn't have somebody, like, even when you're working for people that way, the amount of, like, reporting you do in is going to be pretty limited. Like, you're going to have certain things you report in on, etc., but it's not going to be, like, every week at Tuesday you have to meet with the whole team. It's usually not that way anymore, right? And so what happens is the, ed the bookends fall off the shelf, and then the books go, is kind of what happens, right? So we have to install a routine for ourselves. And... Having kind of come up with employment to the freedom of sales to freedom of entrepreneurship, I kind of had this gradual shift, and it was really natural for me. But I've, I've known a lot of people along the way that it wasn't. I, I've noticed that a lot of people that kind of move into sales or some sort of sales support or position where they have a territory and they can travel, a lot of time those people are really good at their jobs before that, and within a year to two into that they get fired. Because they're not getting their job done, and part of it's that routine. And I've also noticed people that sometimes they like they do a really good execution of a side hustle, and then what happens is they go full time, and the business stays the size it was when it was a part time business, in spite of the fact that they're working on it full time. And I mean, they actually are. Like they were working this business like two, three hours a day, and killing themselves, and putting in nine, ten hours a day in a job. Now they actually are doing something. They're active with their business eight hours a day. The business is not growing any faster than it was before they did it, which means they've, they've gotten on a stationary bike and started pedaling really hard, but they expect the bike to go somewhere. And generally to me, that comes from not having a routine. So I think it is absolutely the case that you will be better off with some sort of routine in your life. And a lot of times people that are kind of free-spirited, whatever, they don't like that because you can't tell me what to do. Dude, nobody's telling you what to do. What we're talking about is being accountable to thyself. And to me, one of the things that since I've you know completely immersed myself in podcasting has helped me stay within my routine. It's not just having one, but having something that initiates movement in the morning 
that is non-optional. And I, you can make that non-optional however you want. I've done it with livestock. Every morning, I have to go out to the house that's kind of out behind me here, and I have to open this door so all the quack, the quacking can be released, right? The ducks come out. And when they come out, then they're happy. And if they don't come out, then they're sad. And if I leave them in there, it starts to get really hot, and then they can die. And then they have to have water. So I have their water tanks, and I move them wherever they are, and I fill them up in the morning. And during that, I listen to podcasts or other uh, content, maybe audiobooks or whatever, to, to kind of get my mind going and to learn something so I'm not wasting that time. I got little baby birds. They have to come out. I've got some young birds that are out in the aviary, but rats and stuff can get in there, and they're still really little, and I don't want them to die. So they got to get put away every night. That means they're confined, and they have to come out into the aviary. And then everybody has to be fed, because if I don't feed them, they get really angry at me, and I could get eaten by ducks, or they could die, right? So I have to do that. Uh, my dogs go out every day. Uh, I pet them. Yeah, I welcome them in the day. Like, th having a living thing in your life that requires attention initiates momentum. And to me, like... The hardest thing for most people with maintaining a routine isn't maintaining the routine in of itself. It's the first step in initiating that routine for the day. So when you get up and you do something that's part of the routine, it starts a process. So it's very natural for me then that you know, part of my routine is I make coffee every morning. So I get up, I put the coffee on the boil. right? I put the coffee in the, the French press. And then it's going to take time for the water to boil. So in that time, I walk out, I let the birds out, I make sure the dogs go out with me, I go out to the aviary, I let the babies out, I go to the garage, I grab the feed, I dump the feed in the, in the feed containers, right, for the birds to eat. I come back in the house, the water has boiled, the water goes into the French press, boom, and I am now in motion. You know, then maybe I'll use the bathroom while it seeps in and then come back out and then pour a cup of coffee. I'll sit down on the couch and I'll review and do my initial social media for, you know, the, 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 the day. Like check things from the night before, put some stuff out, communicate with you guys, have one cup of coffee. Then I'll pick something to listen to, put my headphones on, throw my headphones on, try to get out the door before the wife gets back with the kids so I'm not interrupted in my routine. Go out there, fill all the tanks. That takes about 30 minutes. I get 30 minutes of good quality information, and maybe I rehearse. Like if, if something makes me think of something, I'm like, I should put that in Miyagi, or I should put that in the podcast. Then I'll pause that, and I'll actually stand out there like a, like a, like a raving lunatic, probably talking louder than I should because my headphones are unlucky. I have no close neighbors. And I'll actually rehearse as though I'm delivering the content. I get that in my mind. Then I come inside. First thing I do, email. Boom, knock that email out. Boom, run the item of the day. Boom, let's set up and get ready to do and stream Miyagi mornings. Next, do the podcast, whether it's an interview, standalone, what have you. Market all that stuff throughout the day. Like there's, there's, there's certain things that I hold myself accountable to throughout the day that have to get done. And that's why if you are on Telegram every day, you'll get an alert. Here's the item of the day. You'll get an alert. Miyagi Mornings is going to be live in 15 minutes. You'll get an alert. Miyagi Mornings is done. You missed the live, but here's the archive. Right? You'll get an alert. The podcast is out. You'll get, you know, these things are going to show up for you. If you're on the email list, somewhere between two and four, based on when I get done, how long it takes that day, you're going to get an email. Here's what's new at this, and all that stuff's going to be in that email. 
And that doesn't happen without a routine. And then the routine also has to have procedures built into the routine. So like when somebody wants to be on the show, I'll get an email from somebody. Hey, I really would like to be on the show. Fill out the guest form. But I'm so-and-so, and I'm important, and I do this and that, and I've been on MSNBC or whatever. Great. Love to hear your pitch. Fill out the guest form. But I never mind, we don't want you. It's not personal. It's the guest form comes. The guest form gives all the details and data that another party in the business needs to book the guest and make sure that we're all on the same page and we are all going to be on the same page on the same day. We know the right time, the right place, and the right means to communicate with each other to get the interview done, and we're talking about the same thing. We both are of the same mind as to what we're talking about. If you can't do that, boom, you're out of the routine. You refuse to work inside the routine with the entity you want to work with. You're done, and that's another part of your routine, right? Another part of your routine is once you set this routine, you create this bubble. Now, that doesn't mean you're an inflexible asshole. It doesn't mean if, if your neighbor calls you up and says, hey, man, um, I'm in deep shit, I need your help, and it's something you can help with, that you're like, I'm sorry, my routine says I have to take a dump now. I don't mean that. But when somebody wants to come inside the bubble, and you have procedures within the routine inside the bubble of your operation, either you do those things, or away you go. You don't come in the bubble. And if you don't follow that, bad shit happens. Things start to break down. I remember there were some times that Dorothy made some exceptions for people because they were nice and we knew them. And I'm like, no, the business has procedures. This, it, 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 it's not about me being mad or anything. It's about if we break procedure within this routine, since the whole thing operates on a routine, then it's going to throw things off and there's going to be miscommunications, misunderstandings, and, and misalignments, and we're not going to get everything done every day. And, that's, and those of you that don't run a business or whatever, that same thing is at play in your life on some level at all times. And it always will be. In a way, it works this way. You, you don't have a choice in this matter. You just have a choice with how you handle it. It's like permaculture. Sometimes you'll talk to people about permaculture and you'll say, well, when we, we look at designing... Um, a system, we have seven layers in that system. You know, we have a, a canopy layer of trees, a subcanopy layer of trees, vines, rhizomes, etc. Bushes and shrubs and herbs, we have all these seven layers in this system. And they may say something like, I don't want to do permaculture. I don't want seven layers. No, the seven layers exist. They are, they are, they are definitions within the framework of space-time. Right, You have this space-time, these three dimensions of space, and this, as we understand it, human nature, linear concept of time. Those things will fill in with something. And the only choices you'll have to maintain them with permaculture is either to fill them with what you want or to mechanically remove that which shows up to occupy the space. The only reason your lawn doesn't turn into a forest is you mow it. So you're able to have basically an herbaceous layer and a root layer, a rhizome layer, and maintain that. But the only way you can do that is either with grazing animals or a lawnmower or a scythe. And if you do nothing, nature will send all seven layers. Well, uh, routine works like this. You're going to have a routine. It's just either going to be organized and productive or disorganized and non-productive.
So I think that when people are like, well, I don't want a routine, well, you probably have one. It's probably being a jack-off all day and not getting anything done and then bitching about why you don't have what you want. I know that sounds harsh, but guys, it's, it's freaking reality, man. Um, the, the thumbnail for today's video, and I don't remember the exact quote. I'm trying to pull it up right now so I say it right so I don't miss, I don't like misquoting people, but Paula White said, your future is found in your daily routine. Successful people do daily what others do occasionally. And I think there's a lot to that. It's a lot about what I'm saying. That's why I picked it for today. But I think it's bigger than that. It's not just having a routine and doing things consistently that makes a person successful. It's doing the right things consistently. Because plenty of people have that routine we started at, the book end routine. You have a job. You work for an asshole named Jack Spirico. You show up on time or he fires you. That creates your routine, and that routine is designed for whose success. If you work for me, and I designed your routine by putting limitations and parameters on your day, and then I pay you once a week at the end of the week a paycheck, whose success did I design that routine for? And it's not because I'm an asshole. It's because all humans that get what they want, anyway, and all humans, period, really, tend to act in their self-interest. So if I hire you and I'm paying you $500, $1,000 a week, something like that, to work for me, am I more concerned about your success in life in general or your success as my employee that gets my work done that I need to grow my business? I'm putting together a routine for you to manage you as an employee to my benefit. And I have every right to do that because I'm paying the bill. Okay. You don't have to take that approach, though, even if you work for somebody else. you Because what I love is when you're like, oh, that guy doesn't need a freaking routine. In fact, if I force a routine on him, I get less out of him. Holy shit, let him go. And that's how even those of you that are going to stay employees, you can not just excel above your superiors, but you can literally bury them. It, it's a matter of finding the right employer that recognizes that in you And you won't get recognized with that in two weeks. It will take time. It will take, you will have to demonstrate it outside of the boundaries you're initially given. You're going to have to be the guy that's five o'clock and I go, hey, Tom, why aren't you leaving? And you go, I got some, some stuff to, to work on. And I can walk out the door at five. You can walk out the door at 5.15. You've made a bigger impression on me, the guy that kissed my ass all day long, that I'm ready to fire for kissing my ass all day long. And if you do that enough, then all of a sudden the person that you're working for or the company you're working for says, give this person more freedom and let's see what they can do. And so whether you're doing it for yourself, you're kind of in the middle with work from home or you know sales territory or whatever, or if you're doing it as a pure employee, if you really want to get what you want, stop letting other people set this routine for you because when they design it for you, they're designing it for themselves, not for you. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up, and we will be back tomorrow with another subject. Well, hi, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 159, right? Um, I, I did an episode this week on crypto already. It was really Bitcoin-centric, um, but I also kind of dunked, like shit can dunked on NFTs, and um, it really wasn't my intent, I think, to... 
And I don't think I tried, but I think maybe I was so harsh that I actually, like, even though I said, hey, there's some cool things we can do with NFTs, people probably thought, well, maybe someday. And these NFTs are really stupid and all. And I do. I think, like, I'm going to try to find it so I can add it to the video notes. It's not in there yet. But I saw, like, a video come up in my feed uh, this week while I was doing some research on NFTs. And it was a guy saying... How I sold a JPEG of a red square for six hundred or two thousand. It was it was a stupid amount of money for what it was. He literally made a JPEG red square, put it on an NFT marketplace, and sold it. And that kind of stupidity, um, I, I think it's bad for crypto as a whole. And I don't think it makes any sense. And I I, I don't really understand. I understand the mindset of somebody that's like really. I can make a red square and get 600 bucks. fine, I'll take the fool's money. I, I get that. I don't understand the fool spending the $600 for the red square. I just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. But as I was listening to Pop's, Pop's podcast, and I want to make sure I say the guy's name right. Apparently he has a big following, but I, I never heard of him before. Um, his name is Blau, something Blau, um, Justin Blau. And he's a musician. He's also big into crypto. And he's working and developing a platform for musicians called Royal, which I'm sure is a play on royalty, like, you know, musicians earning royalties. And this was the basics of what he explained. I've got a link to the podcast with Pomp where you can listen to the whole thing if you want to. But the idea was that a, a musician might come out and decide, I'm going to take 5% or 10% or 15% or whatever he wanted to um, of the proceeds from this song if it becomes successful. And I'm going to let 10 or 15 or 20 fans buy a token that gives them the rights to revenue that comes from this song once it's released. Uh, that would be revenue from direct royalties. Some of the streaming services pay royalties. Some people sell, still sell their music individually on iTunes or things like that. And, and so musicians, including musicians you'll never hear on the radio, actually do make you know, decent incomes. Very seldom do they become you know, the next megastar or whatever, but some of them make really good incomes. A guy that used to work for me as a web developer is actually kind of a death metal lead singer in a band. And, and you know when I when I interviewed him for the job, he told me that, and he's like, I ride motorcycles, and you know, like, and it was like the typical shit that like all these guys in that age bracket say about themselves. And I hired him because he was a good web developer. But uh, then in time, as I got to know him, I'm like, he's like a legitimate, like not my kind of music, like screaming, you know, crazy, but people like it. And he was making like the whole band collectively made about a hundred thousand dollars a year, split up between them. Uh, in music that they sold. So that's not enough that any one of them could have lived you know, off it only, but they actually made a pretty good living as, as a band mostly that played venues in like Plano, Texas and stuff like that. So it was, uh, it was an interesting uh, look at that industry. And what this guy's doing, this, this Blau chap, is so that you could go out and say, I'm going to give like, you know, each token gives 50 basis points, let's say, on this music if it's successful. And, you know, you could limit that to maybe 10 tokens or 20 tokens or whatever you wanted to do. And then the song either thrives or doesn't. But all of the royalty payments then can go in a smart contract payment, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever, to the token holder. 
And then that token holder can turn around and say, you know what, this has been a good run. Um, I'd like to sell this token. And within the whole thing, there's a marketplace in of itself where now when I sell you my NFT, you're not buying a JPEG of some guy bouncing a basketball, you know, which might as well be a seal as far as I'm concerned with a ball on its nose. You're buying something that actually has true rights to an intellectual property that has a monetary value that you can actually look at historically what it's yielded and project historically, you know, it, based on historical yield, what it might yield into the future and how long your ROI would be. And that made sense to me. And when I started thinking about this, I thought, you know, the place this seems to make a lot of sense to me would be for authors. And like I said, maybe maybe this exists already. I, I don't know. Um, but I've, I've been struggling to get a book to market. And it was one of those things like after my third person who all I wanted them to do was format the book so that it could go into print and be made available on Amazon and sent out. And instead of just doing the formatting, they wanted to get involved with things. It's like the book is done. If I wanted your opinion, I would have asked. I just kind of let it go. And then COVID hit and it was like, okay, I got to get this thing out. And... I think part of this is, and I, 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 I'm kind of addicted, and I have a question for the live chat right now about how people consume their books. But part of me is an older guy. You know, people call me a boomer. I'm not a boomer. I'm like mid generation Gen X. I'm, I'm just about 50 years of age. But I did come up at a time when a book was a book. You had a physical book that you read, you opened. When I wanted to research something in school and I was writing a report, I had to go to the library. You know, get out a thing called an encyclopedia or a textbook or a, a book based on the subject or, or something. And I had to read it and I had to go through it page by page. And so part of me really still believes in that model. But the other part of me is honest and says, so, Jack, how do you read most of your books? And if they're not some sort of a guide where there's a lot of pictures and diagrams and things like this that that I need to take in. If it's if it's text, I read my books 95% online with something like a Kindle app. Um, I'm a big fan of, of a writer named Brad Thor. He's been to my place, cool dude. I've discovered his books after he, he, he was uh, here, and I've read like all his books in his, what they call the Scott Harveth series. And I really like it, but I've, I don't have a single one of his books physically. I buy them electronically, I consume them electronically, and uh, I'm wondering if maybe we just, like, honest to God, isn't it a better system? Isn't selling a book for less money and making more profit without cutting down trees, making paper, doing printing, doing binding, like, unless there's a compelling reason for why you need this book to be physical, Doesn't it make more sense for everybody to do most of our our book consumption and book pro, uh, pro, uh, book creation in an electronic format? And I'm just wondering, like some of you, that if you have authors that you read all their books, like if you have, you know, for somebody for you that is a Brad Thor and Tom Clancy, whatever, and it could be in any, you know, that's kind of that adventure spy thriller, right? Like whatever it is, like if, if 
the author that you really like, that when that guy, Dan Brown, whoever, like big-time author, small-time author, I don't care, they come out with a book, you're probably going to buy it because you've read their other books and you like what they do and you like the way they tell a story or the way they inform. Would you consider buying an NFT that would not only support your author but tie into the revenue, especially if that author had a successful track record of producing revenue. And, I mean, I would, because you could honestly take a look at, you know, if we do this the right way, you'd be able to see, like, well, what did this guy make on his last three books? You know, and a new author trying to drum up support might get a lot less money, but, you know, that would be more of a risk play, or more of just a pure support play. I think that this would... Uh, This would, would have a lot of traction. And the way I kind of see it working would be, I think it would make sense initially for whoever rolled this out to roll out a full platform. That would be kind of like an app-driven reader. And just like Kindle has an app, right? And you, you, know, you go to Amazon, you buy a book, but it gets delivered to your app. And if you buy a Kindle um, book, you can't just like make copies of it. You can't just send it to somebody else, right? It's controlled. And this is important. I think that, you know, we have gotten to a point with so much information deflation that we think that, like, you know, if I, if I buy a copy of a book, I should be able to make 80 copies of it. Or what? The author has no incentive to create this content that you consume if he can't make a living doing it or she can't make a living doing it. So what I, I thought would be really interesting is you could also have a secondary, like a used bookstore. So you can get the used copy if there's a used copy available. So what this would effectively do is you go to the, you know, the NFT bookstore, whatever you want to call it. Terrible name. Don't use that name if you build this. And you buy, you know, Jack Spierko's book. Uh, book one by Jack Spierko, whatever. Doesn't matter what it's called. And you read it, and you're like, that was great. Then you say... You know what? It was great, but it's not something I want to keep in my library. I, I, I'm willing to sell it used. So you could put it on the market. And just like when you go to Amazon and you see, you know, this item is available for less, right? And it turns out that there's somebody that returned one or is selling one off of a pallet they bought that's a used item, even though it's basically a new item. You can buy it for less money. So then what would happen is Bill buys Jack's book. Bill reads Jack's book. Bill likes Jack's book. Jack's book is selling well. Bill puts his copy for sale back in the marketplace. When somebody buys it, it goes off his reader. He doesn't have it anymore. And it now appears on the new person's reader. But they paid less for it. But the author, and if there's NFTs against it in royalties, still get paid. And every time it resells, they still get paid. Now, the interesting thing is you would think that that would ever, you think that would like kill the price of the book, but it really wouldn't because let's say the person sold a thousand books and after selling a thousand, there was a hundred people that wanted to resell it, but there's 150 people that want to buy it. There's still a limited supply of the resell and a lot of people aren't going to resell the book. They're going to want to keep it. They want to keep it in their digital library. I also think that what we could do is say, me as an author, I don't want people going out and selling my book for 13 cents, right? That, that would start to hurt. If people were out there like, 
I, I read his book, don't give a shit anymore, I don't care about the guy. The book was fine, but uh, it's selling for $14. bucks. i am going to sell my copy for $2. That could start to hurt. There, and there has to be a price for the service of doing the distribution, management, etc. from the platform. So what if you could say, sale price, $14, used price, $8.50. And you set, so now since it's in a proprietary format where the person has to be using the software, the app, whatever, to read it, that you can set a threshold for what is the price of this book in the secondary market, including there isn't one. The author maintains control. And then you can say, I want to, like when you publish the book, I want to issue uh, 20 NFTs. Each NFT is uh, going to be able to receive uh, 1% of the income, or the I would say the profit on this book, less the cost of the service fee, like whatever this platform charges. And then when that book goes live, if you bought my NFT and I sell 10 books today, you get 1% of the profit on those 10 books. And you get that in perpetuity. And if that platform only did this, it would be awesome. And then once you built it, Like, I think we need to start thinking more of like this kind of modular build. Then you could go, if you really wanted to do print copies, okay, you could you know, tie that into a print-on-demand once you had enough activity to warrant the expense and the work and the effort of doing that. Because otherwise, this is pretty much, I think, could be spun up by the person with the right technical knowledge with off-the-shelf work that's already been done. There's not a lot of new work to make something like this functional. And I think you could create almost as unlimited variables from the author's standpoint, right? How many, like, you could also say, like, what if an author said, my next book, I want to pre-sell the tokens. But, of course, this opens, like, the guy could be a scammer, right? So maybe he pre-sells the tokens, and maybe what happens then is there's a smart contract that says, okay, Jack, you know, has a, He's sold books before. He's probably good for this. We'll release 25% of his token sales as an advance, like, like a publishing company does, on this book. And when he completes the book and it goes live in the marketplace, the other 75% goes over and the, the tokens that are locked up in the contract, Bill, Bob, Steve, Stan, Charlie, etc., bought a token. Those are held. And when the contract is complete, the other 75% of the token income goes over to Jack and everybody gets their token. Like, And you could say that when you're a new author, you've never done it before, you just can't pre-sell. When you've, you know, like you could create a reputation score where people would be able to get more of their advance based on their past track record. And of course, the market itself rectifies that. Uh, Nick in the chat says, maybe not proprietary, but somehow encoded to the NFT. I think that would be cool, but I'm also trying to say, like, how could someone get this out the door now? And it'd be interesting to try to create something, but, like, how do you keep it from being transferred? Once it's in a PDF, anybody anywhere, right, could you, you can email it, you can make a million copies. I think you have to do something to create a digital rights component to this. But I also think, I also think that, like, we do have to accept the fact that creators, authors, etc., They put, like, if you look at the thumbnail for today's video, it's a quote from Ernest Hemingway. And he said, writing, he said, and of course he used typewriters back then, he said, writing is easy. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. Like, to write a great book, whether it's 
uh, a reference book, it's a nonfiction book, it's a story, a novel, whatever, to actually write a great book that people actually want to read. And, you know, if it's more than a few pages, if it's something like, when I read one of Brad Thor's books, like, it's hours of readings, eight or nine hours of my life reading it. It has to be good, or I'm not going to read it. It's not even about how much money I paid for it at that point. Like, I paid ten bucks for a book because uh, it seemed like it was going to be good. It's like six hours to read it, and I get in like 30 minutes, and it's not doing it for me. I'm done, right? I'm not going to keep investing my time. My time is more valuable to me than when I paid for the book. Um, on physical books, I don't know how you would enforce rights on the physical book for the secondary market. I don't think you would. I, 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 I just think that like when you sell a physical book and that book goes out in the world and somebody can hold on to it, it can be handed to somebody else. But I was also thinking, like, what are some of the other things that we could do with this that's really cool and really creative? What if I said, you know what, I'm going to be releasing my book, here it is, there, you know, there's a preview of it so you know it's going to be there, I'm going to sell NFTs, um, I'm going to charge X for 1% Y of the book, I'm going to sell 20 of them, that's how many they'll be, and I want to limit it. Nobody can buy more than two per account. You can know, like, I don't want somebody buying all of it. I want, I want active participants. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say that anybody that buys an NFT, not only do you get your 1% of sales, you're going to get a coupon code where you can give away 10 copies of the book to anybody you want. Or you can give away 10 copies at 50% off. That I can create a viral marketing component by the people most vested in promoting my book for me. Maybe I say you can give away 50 at 25, 30, 40% off of the sale price. Because that way we're actually viral marketing the platform, not just the book. And you've got hundreds of authors coming into a platform like this and, and, and then marketing not just themselves, but marketing the platform Because it's in the best interest of everybody. Rising tide, all boats float. That type of thing. Like That would be another option that you'd have. Maybe you have that you can give away one copy of the book. I don't know. Maybe you have that um, you get something else, kind of like a Kickstarter. Maybe anybody who is one of my um, NFT holders for the book also gets mentioned in the book, enlisted in the book somehow, right? Like... There's, there's almost no limits to what you could do with this, and you could build this very modularly. So an author, um, an author wanted to do a lot of this stuff. Like, this is hard, but you could build this with like a GUI control panel. It just like click this button, put in a percentage, boom, 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 check it, boom, spits out a, sp a smart contract. Eric says, how would you handle if you wanted to gift the book to someone instead of selling it? I think what you would do is you would buy the book, And you would generate a code. I think this is how I've had people give me books on Kindle this way. You buy the book for somebody else, and they get a code, and then they can claim their book. Or if you had their account use, if they had a username on the service, then if you knew their username, you could say or, or some sort of like. So like this is where this gets really exciting, right? Because now we're talking about blockchain, we're talking about crypto, we're talking about user interfaces, we're talking about the ability to build in privacy. So you could literally have a friends list, right? All your friends could, could be in this. You could even have messaging. You could have book chats, like chat up books and stuff like that. But if you had your family in there and you had several family members that wanted books this Christmas, 
They it could literally have their book just appear in their account. It depends on whoever builds the platform. And I, I think that's that's really interesting in like you know, we could start adding DAOs to this. And to me, we've gone from a time when Bitcoin was probably the worst currency to do micropayments with, to check this shit out with 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 um with lightning. It might be the best and most flexible for doing true micropayments to where instead of like this kind of like weird reporting calculation back end thing, if you use Lightning, and it doesn't matter how the books are purchased, right? If you want to allow U.S. dollars, Canadian dollars, euros, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Dash, I mean, you can let the books be purchased. It doesn't matter because you can have back end swaps, But you could do your royalty payments to the author and to the NFT holders in Bitcoin through Lightning payments. So when somebody bought one book, it would stream out to me, my 80%, and then let's say my 20 NFT holders would all get their 1% per book at time of sale or very, very soon after. And they would, that would just go into a Lightning wallet. Why not make that part? Like To do this, you'd have to have an account on the site to be a consumer and an NFT buyer or a publisher, and then you have a Lightning wallet in your account, your payments go into there, and you withdraw it whenever you think there's enough in there to make it withdrawing going off-chain. Like, And that would just be one way. You could do it with another, like an Ethereum killer coin, like a Cardano or a Cosmos or an Algorand. You could do it with Ethereum once they get their shit together and get Ethereum 2.0 out. You could do it right now with Ethereum and use Polygon the way that Lightning works with it. Like, you could do it however you want. I'm, I would do it if I could, if I had the ability, the time, and the money to do this. I would do it with Bitcoin and Lightning. But I think that, like, my big question is, and just start thinking about this, what other ways can you think of to use this And think about that, and I will be back next week with another episode of Miyagi Mornings, folks. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.